Chapter Ten, Part One of A History of the Philippines. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary McFadden. A History of the Philippines by David Barrows. Chapter Ten, Part One. Chapter Ten. A Century of Obscurity and Decline, 1663-1762 Political Decline of the Philippines For the hundred years succeeding the abandonment of the Moluccas, the Philippines lost all political significance as a colony. From almost every standpoint they were profitless to Spain. There were continued deficits, which had to be made good from the Mexican treasury. The part of Spain and the conquest of the East was over, and the Philippines became little more than a great missionary establishment presided over by the religious orders. Death of Governor Salcedo by the Inquisition In 1663, Lara was succeeded by Don Diego de Salcedo. On his arrival, Manila had high hopes of him, which were speedily disappointed. He loaded the Acapulco galleon with his own private merchandise, and then dispatched it earlier than was usual, before the cargoes of the merchants were ready. He engaged in a wearisome strife with the archbishop, and seems to have worried the ecclesiastic, who was aged and feeble, into his grave. At the end of a few years he was hated by everyone, and a conspiracy against him was formed, which embraced the religious, the army, the civil officials, and the merchants. Beyond the reach of power of ordinary plotters, he fell victim to the commissioner of the Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition, which wrought such cruelty and misery in the peninsula, was carried also to the Spanish colonies. As we have seen, it was primarily the function of the Dominican order to administer the institution. The powers exercised by an inquisitor can scarcely be understood at the present day. His methods were secret, the charges were not made public, the whole proceedings were closeted, and yet so great were the powers of this court that none could resist its authority or inquire into its actions. Spain forbade any heretics, Jews, or Moors going to the colonies, and did the utmost to prevent heresy abroad. She also established in America the Inquisition itself. Fortunately, it never attained the importance in the Philippines that it had in Spain. In the Philippines, there was no tribunal, the institution being represented solely by a commissioner. Death of the Governor In 1667, when the unpopularity of Governor Salcedo was at its height, this commissioner professed to discover in him grounds of heresy from the fact that he had been born in Flanders, and decided to avenge the church by encompassing his ruin. By secret arrangement, the master of the camp withdrew the guard from the palace, and the commissioner, with several confederates, gained admission. The door of the governor's room was opened by an old woman, who had been terrified into complicity, and the governor was seized sleeping, with his arms lying at the head of his bed. The commissioner informed the governor that he was a prisoner of the holy office. He was taken to the convent of the Franciscans. Here he was kept in chains until he could be sent to Mexico to appear before the tribunal there. The government in Mexico annulled the arrest of the commissioner, but Salcedo died at sea on the return of the vessel to the Philippines in 1669. In 1668, 
A Jesuit mission under Padre Diego Luis de San Vitores was established on the Ladrones, the first of many mission stations, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, in the South Pacific. The islands at that time were well populated and fertile, and had drawn the enthusiasm of Padre San Vitores in 1662, when he first sailed to the Philippines. The hostility of the Manchus in China, the Japanese persecutions, and the abandonment of the Mindanao had closed many mission fields, and explains the eagerness with which the Jesuits sought the royal permission to Christianize these islands, which had been so constantly visited by Spanish ships, but never before colonized. With Padre San Vitores and his five Jesuit associates were a number of Christian Filipino catechists. Settlement of Guam The mission landed at Guam, and was favorably received. Society among these islanders was divided into castes. The chiefs were known as Chamori, which has led to the natives of the Ladrones being called Chamoros. A piece of ground was given to the Jesuits for a church at the principal town called Agadna, in Perens, Agana, and here also a seminary was built for the instruction of young men. The Queen Regent of Spain, Maria of Austria, gave an annual sum to this school, and in her honor, the Jesuits changed the name of the islands to the Marianas. The Jesuits preached on eleven inhabited islands in, of the group, and in a year's time had baptized thirteen thousand islanders, and given instruction to twenty thousand. Troubles with the Natives at Guam This first year was the most successful in the history of the mission. Almost immediately after, the Jesuits angered the islanders by compulsory conversions. There were quarrels in several places, and priests, trying to baptize children against the wishes of their parents, were killed. In 1670, the Spaniards were attacked, and obliged to fortify themselves at Agana. The Jesuits had a guard of a Spanish captain and about thirty Spanish and Filipino soldiers, who, after some slaughter of the natives, compelled them to sue for peace. The conditions imposed by the Jesuits were that the natives should attend mass and festivals, have their children baptized, and send them to be catechized. The hatred of the natives was unabated, however, and in 1672 San Vitores was killed by them. His biographer claims that at his death he had baptized nearly 50,000 of these islanders. And here a footnote. See the account of the settlement of the Ladrones by the Spanish in Bernie's Voyages in the Pacific, Volume 3. Depopulation of the Ladrone Islands About 1680, a governor was sent to the islands, and they were organized as a dependency of Spain. The policy of the governors and the Jesuits was conversion by the sword. The natives were persecuted from island to island, and in the history of European settlements, there is hardly one that had more miserable consequences to the inhabitants. Disease was introduced and swept off large numbers. Others fell resisting the Spaniards, and an entire island was frequently depopulated by order of the governor or the desire of the Jesuits to have the natives brought to Guam. Many, with little doubt, fled to other archipelagos. If we can trust the Jesuit accounts, there were in the whole group 100,000 inhabitants when the Spaniards arrived. A generation saw them almost extinct. Dampier, who touched at Guam in 1686, says then that on the island where the Spaniards had found 30,000 people, there were not above 100 natives. 
In 1716 and 1721, other voyagers announced the number of inhabitants on Guam at 2,000, but only one other island of the group was populated. When Anson, in 1742, visited Guam, the number had risen to 4,000, and there were a few hundred inhabitants on Rota, but these seemed to have been the whole population. The original native population certainly very nearly touched extinction. The islands were from time to time colonized from the Philippines, and the present population is very largely of Filipino blood. Conflicts between Governor and Archbishop Meanwhile, in the Philippines, the conflict of the governor with the archbishop and the friars continued. The conduct of both sides was selfish and outrageous. In 1683, the actions of Archbishop Pardo became so violent and seditious that the Audiencia decreed his banishment to Pangasian, or Cagayan. He was taken by force to Lingayan, where he was well accommodated, but kept under surveillance. The Dominicans retaliated by excommunication, and the Audiencia thereupon banished the provincial of the order from the islands, and sent several other friars to Marveles. But the year following, Governor Vargas was relieved by the arrival of his successor, who was favorable to the ecclesiastical side of the controversy. The archbishop returned, and assumed a high hand. He suspended and excommunicated on all sides, the Oidores were banished from the city, and all died in exile in remote portions of the archipelago. The ex-governor-general Vargas, being placed under the spiritual ban, sued for pardon, and begged that his repentance be recognized. The archbishop sentenced him to stand daily for the space of four months at the entrances to the churches of the city and of the Parian, and in the thronged quarter of Binondo, attired in the habit of a penitent, with a rope about his neck, and carrying a lighted candle in his hand. He was, however, able to secure a mitigation of this sentence, but was required to live, absolutely alone, in a hut on an island in the Pasig River. He was sent a prisoner to Mexico in 1689, but died upon the voyage. The various deans and canons who had concurred in the archbishop's banishment, as well as other religious with whom the prelate had had dissensions, were imprisoned or exiled. The bodies of two oideres were, on their death and after their burial, disinterred, and their bones profaned. Degeneration of the Colony Under Church Rule Archbishop Pardo died in 1689, but the strife and confusion which had been engendered continued. There were quarrels between the archbishop and the friars, between the prelate and the governor. All classes seemed to have shared the bitterness and the hatred of these unhappy dissensions. The moral tone of the whole colony during the latter part of the seventeenth century was lowered. Corruption flourished everywhere, and the vigor of the administration decayed. Violence went unrebuked, and the way was opened for the deplorable tragedy in which this strife of parties culminated. Certainly no governor could have been more supine and shown greater incapacity and weakness of character than the one who ruled in the time of Archbishop Pardo. Improvements made by Governor Bustamante. Enrichment of the Treasury. In the year 1717, however, came a governor of a different type, Fernando Manuel de Bustamante. He was an old soldier, stern of character and severe in his measures. He found the treasury robbed and exhausted. Nearly the whole population of Manila were in debt to the public funds. Bustamante ordered these amounts paid, 
and to compel their collection he attached the cargo of silver arriving by the galleon from Acapulco. This cargo was owned by the religious companies, officials, and merchants, all of whom were indebted to the government. In one year of his vigorous administration he raised the sum of three hundred thousand pesos for the treasury. With sums of money again at the disposal of the state, Bustamante attempted to revive the decayed prestige and commerce of the islands. REFOUNDING OF ZAMBOANGA In 1718 he refounded and rebuilt the Presidio of Zamboanga. Not a year had passed, since its abandonment years before, that the pirates from Borneo and Mindanao had failed to ravage the Visayas. The Jesuits had petitioned regularly for its re-establishment, and in 1712 the king had decreed its reoccupation. The citadel was rebuilt on an elaborate plan under the direction of the engineer Don Juan Sicara. Besides the usual barracks, storehouses, and arsenals, there were within the walls a church, hospital, and quartel for the Pampangan soldiers. Sixty-one cannon were mounted upon the defenses. Upon the petition of the recollects, Bustamante also established a presidio at Labo, at the southern point of the island of Palawan, whose coasts were attacked by the Moros from Sulu and Borneo. Treaty with Siam In the same year he sent an embassy to Siam, with the idea of stimulating the commerce which had flourished a century before. The reception of this embassy was most flattering. A treaty of peace, friendship, and commerce was made, and on ground ceded to the Spaniards was begun the erection of a factory. Improvements in the City of Manila how far this brave and determined man might have revived the colony, it is impossible to say. The population of Manila, both ecclesiastical and civil, was at this time so sunk in corruption and so degenerate as to make almost impossible any recuperation except under the rule of a man equally determined as Bustamante, but ruling for a long period of time. He had not hesitated to order investigations into the finances of the islands, which disclosed defalcations amounting to 700,000 pesos. He fearlessly arrested the defaulters, no matter what their station. The whole city was concerned in these peculations, consequently the utmost fear and apprehension existed on all sides, and Bustamante, hated as well as dreaded, was compelled to enforce his reform single-handed. His Murder he was opposed by the friars and defied by the archbishop, but, notwithstanding ecclesiastical condemnation, he went to the point of ordering the arrest of the prelate. The city rose in sedition, and a mob headed by friars proceeded to the palace of the governor, broke in upon him, and, as he faced them alone and without support, killed him in cold blood. Perins, October 11, 1719. The archbishop proclaimed himself governor and president of the Audiencia. The orderes and officials who had been placed under arrest by Bustamante were released, and his work overthrown. The new government had neither the courage nor the inclination to continue Bustamante's policy, and in 1720 the archbishop called a council of war, which decreed the abandonment of the fort at Labo. When the news of this murder reached Spain, the king ordered an investigation and the punishment of the guilty, and in 1721 Governor Campo arrived, to put these mandates into execution. The culprits, however, were so high and so influential that the governor did not dare proceed against them, and although the commands of the king were reiterated in 1724, the assassins of Bustamante were never brought to justice. 
treaty with the sultan of jolo in spite of the cowardly policy of the successors of bustamante the presidio of zamboanga was not abandoned so poorly was it administered however that it was not effective to prevent moro piracy and the attacks upon the Visayas and the Calamianes continued. In 1721, a treaty was formed with the Sultan of Jolo, providing for trade between Manila and Jolo, the return or ransom of captives, and the restitution to Spain of the island of Basilan. THE MORO PIRATES OF Tawi Tawi. To some extent this treaty seems to have prevented assaults from Jolo, but in 1730 the Moros of Tawi-Tawi fell upon Palawan and the Calamianes, and in 1731 another expedition from the south spent nearly a whole year cruising and destroying among the Visayas. Deplorable State of Spanish Defenses The defenses of the Spaniards during these many decades were continually in a deplorable state. Their arms were wretched and, except in moments of great apprehension, no attention was given to fortifications, to the preservation of artillery, nor to the supply of ammunition. Sudden attacks ever found the Spaniards unprepared. Military unreadiness was the normal condition of this archipelago from these early centuries down to the destruction of the Spanish armament by the American fleet. End of chapter 10, part 1. Recording by Gary McFadden.